There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Funding high-risk, high-return technology research often falls to governments, and perhaps the best record is America's. Its blue-sky program called DARPA has been so successful that lots of countries are now looking to copy it. And ahead of today's private funeral of Kenneth Kaunda in Zambia, our obituaries editor reflects on his life, a reformer who railed against British colonial rule, an icon of nonviolent struggle, but in the end, not the savior of his country that he longed to be. First up, though. Russia is in the midst of its third and most severe wave of COVID-19, fueled by the highly contagious Delta variant. Daily deaths have reached six or 700, the highest figures since the coronavirus struck. The official overall death toll for Russia has surpassed 130,000. But according to The Economist's own figures on excess deaths throughout the pandemic, the real tally is closer to half a million, which suggests significant undercounting. Vaccines should be the saving grace. After all, back in August, Russia was the first country to register a COVID vaccine, its homemade Sputnik V. In May this year, President Vladimir Putin described the jab as being among the most reliable and safest available. As simple and secure, he said, as a Kalashnikov assault rifle. And yet, despite Russia's ready supply of vaccines and a mass inoculation drive that started relatively early in December 2020, just 17% of the population has received at least one dose. The big problem that we see in Russia is there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy. According to the Levada Center, which is probably the only really trusted, reliable, independent pollster in Russia, back in February, they found that 57% of Russians didn't worry about catching the virus. And even more worrying, perhaps two-thirds of the people in the country it found rejected the idea of getting vaccinated against it. Christopher Lockwood is our Europe editor. A big part of the problem, perhaps, relates to the Sputnik V vaccine. That's the Russian vaccine. That's really the only one that's being used in Russia in any uh, significant degree. And it was approved before the critical phase three trials were completed. And then when the phase three trials were published, there were various discrepancies with the data. I mean, this is quite normal. We have it with other vaccines too. But it gave the impression to people that it had been hastily done and perhaps that worried them a bit more. I should add that, you know, subsequently it became clear that there are no significant problems with the vaccine. It seems like a good vaccine. But that doubt was sown in people's minds. 
And that doubt is the reason that people are so reluctant to get vaccinated? Well, there are lots of reasons, but that's certainly one of them. I think another one might be that they get all these mixed messages from the Kremlin. For the past year or so, the Kremlin's been telling everyone it had COVID beaten. A year ago, it lifted the lockdown and, you know, the lockdown had never been very well enforced. Mr. Putin, the president, said it was a a holiday in Russia and they didn't do furlough schemes of the sort that we've seen in most Western European countries or, or in America. And so people didn't really think there was a problem. They thought, oh, the authorities are telling us to go back to work and there's no worry here. That said, the problems all turned out to be far, far worse than anyone was letting on. And so aside from Apache and half-hearted lockdown, what, what measures have been taken in Russia? Well, social distancing and, and masking rules were there, but the authorities didn't seem to pay them any real regard, with one very obvious exception. If you were a supporter of Alexei Navalny, he's the jailed opposition leader, the great bugbear of Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin will never even, of course, say Navalny's name. But this is the man who is scaring the Kremlin quite a lot, even though he's still in prison. So if you're a supporter of Mr. Navalny's and you don't wear a mask in public, then wham, they're going to arrest you. But if you turn up for a pro-Putin rally or, or, you know, just in any other sort of uh, government-approved gathering of any kind, then no problem. For instance, Mr. Putin had 80,000 people packed into a big stadium uh, in order to mark the sixth anniversary of the annexation of Crimea. And Russian television has been telling people all kinds of lies as well, that that Bill Gates uh, invented coronavirus in order to sell more vaccines or that it's all part of some hybrid war between China and America that Russia's accidentally got mixed up in. And so people didn't really ever believe in the rules. They thought these were just government ploys and you could ignore them quite happily. And so they did. And so that's behind why people have no particular interest then in the vaccine, not even the, the proudly homegrown one? Yes, well, I think that's part of it. Another part is that the government didn't sort of entirely get behind the Sputnik V vaccine either. I mean, the obvious example is Mr. Putin himself. Unlike many leaders elsewhere in the world, Joe Biden in America, our very own Boris Johnson in England, uh, were happy to be seen getting their vaccinations, but not Mr. Putin, even though he's a man who will, you know, get his shirt off at the drop of a hat to um, proudly pose in the near buff. But uh, he was never photographed having the vaccine. Again, that probably made people a little bit suspicious. I mean, later on, he did say on his annual phone-in, which is a very important thing in Russia, he doesn't talk to the people very much, but this annual phone-in is, is one of the ways he does it. Все-таки исходило из того, что мне нужно быть защищенным как можно дольше и принял для себя решение привиться вектором, привиться спутника спутником Ви. Тем более, что вооруженные силы у нас прививаются спутником Ви, а все-таки верховный главнокомандующий. He did finally say, yes, I did get vaccinated with Sputnik V. He said, you know, the military are all being given it, and I'm the commander in chief, so of course I did it too. But then. Mixing his message, he went on to say that 10% of people who had had the vaccine could be reinfected. So, again, sort of you could say talking out of both sides of his mouth at the same time. Uh, But perhaps not accidentally, you know, he didn't want to risk alienating the people who think the vaccine doesn't work, perhaps. I mean, it's it's a mystery quite why he would say such a thing, but that's one possible explanation. 
But now Russia is battling the third wave. The Delta variant is spreading there as as indeed everywhere. Is the government getting more behind a vaccination drive as, as a means out? Yes, I think they are. You know, it is finally starting to pick up now in Moscow and other cities too. Uh, restaurants and cafes are now only allowed to serve people if they can show a QR code proving that they've been vaccinated. Hospitals have been allowed to refuse treatment to people who haven't been vaccinated. Some public sector workers have been told they have to be vaccinated or risk losing their jobs. But of course, there's a lot of problems with this too. There's a huge black market in fake QR codes, fake vaccination certificates, uh, fake medical exemptions and so on. So, you know, it's questionable how effective all of this is being. So given all of that and the mixed messages all along, what do you think the outlook is for Russia as this third wave takes hold? Well, it's not good. The Kremlin has already given up on a plan to get 60% of the population vaccinated by the end of the summer. And large numbers of people are at risk of becoming quite ill. Russia's health system is you know, not terrible, but it's, it's not of the best. So all in all, I think Russia is a, a good example of the bad outcomes that you get if you are not particularly competent with your delivery systems, but more important, you are not very effective or trusted with your communications. That is leading to really quite alarming numbers. Um, The official numbers of people with COVID, not that bad, you know, comparable with other countries, but the excess mortality rates are way, way higher. And of course, that's really the only reliable way of knowing what's going on. So it's not at all a good picture and I think entirely a consequence of the shabby way in which the government has handled it. Thanks very much for your time, Chris. Thank you. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Almost a decade ago, America's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, gave $25 million to a small biotechnology firm to develop the idea of using messenger RNA, or mRNA, in vaccines. That firm is now worth almost $80 billion, and you've probably heard of it. It's called Moderna, which has delivered around 200 million doses of its COVID-19 vaccine. DARPA has a rich history of backing high-tech ideas. Early on, the worry was about the D in its name, defense. But it never invented the superweapon that many worried about. Instead, it funded the development of the computer mouse, GPS, digital assistants like Siri, even the internet. ARPANET, as its earliest incarnation was called, built on the ideas of pioneering computer scientist J.C.R. Licklider. The melding of computers and communication and the switch to digital communication technology is doing something pretty good for communication. 
It's no wonder then that a growing number of governments are aiming to launch their own ARPAs. DARPA is the American research agency which has a reasonable claim to have shaped the modern world. Hamish Birrell is The Economist's public policy correspondent. It was set up after the Soviets launched Sputnik in the late 1950s with the aim of ensuring that America basically would be the initiator and not the victim of technological surprises. Since then, it's been important in a huge range of technological advances, not least the internet. So now a number of governments around the world are trying to clone it. Germany has set up two agencies, one civilian and one defence. Uh, Japan has its own agency and Britain is in the process of trying to pass legislation to create an ARPA of its own. But the thing to bear in mind is that setting up a DARPA-like agency is only part of the challenge. The most difficult thing is to get it to work as the original agency does. And, and why is that the tricky bit? What, what makes the original DARPA so hard to replicate? So the model, in a way, kind of seems simple. The remit is to kind of take enormous reckless gambles on things that are so beneficial, only a handful need to work to kind of make the whole venture a success. The philosophy is if every project is succeeding, you're not trying hard enough. Most projects are meant to fail. And so that can be kind of uncomfortable for a government where taxpayers want value for money. And so whereas most research agencies focus on basic research, DARPA builds things. It doesn't use peer review, it doesn't use carefully selected measurements of progress, and it tries to strip bureaucracy to the bones, really. For example, the the conversation back in 1965, which led the agency to give out a million dollars for the first cross-country computer network, a forerunner to the internet, took just 15 minutes. And so this stuff is, is really exciting, it's great fun, but it's uncomfortable for governments. So what's the prescription for governments who do want to do so, besides just getting the stomach for it? So the first challenge is to provide the institutional space for this experimentation. Germany's civilian agency shows how difficult this can be. The cabinet approved it, but then a body called the Federal Court of Auditors came along and restricted who it could hire and the procurement rules it had to follow. In America, the Homeland Security ARPA was established in 2002, but it's been hamstrung by power struggles. So you need to kind of have the right basis when you're setting it up. So it sounds as if getting layers of bureaucracy out of the way is is in fact the first step. It is the first step, but then there are kind of more things you have to do after that. So one of the big challenges is getting the breakthroughs into the real world. And so when ARPA-E, which is the US Advanced Energy Technologies ARPA, began in 2009, the hope was that venture capitalists would come along, pick up innovations that it had developed, and take them to market. But the venture capital scene changed. They were kind of reluctant to invest in technologies which were quite so risky. And so that model hasn't really worked as planned. So instead, they've tweaked the DARPA model to add a kind of tech-to-market team which seeks to guide projects through the industrial jungle. But I think this lack of commercial interest may make the transition from innovation to the real world quite difficult. So given all of that, what chance do you think that all of these DARPA clones around the world will will succeed, will peel back the bureaucracy and, and actually get helpful innovations to market? Uh, I think there's almost no chance that all of them will succeed. I guess the hope is that enough of them will succeed to to make a difference. And so I think if you look at DARPA, it has one big advantage in that in failing to build a terrible weapon, American leaders can reassure themselves that their adversaries won't either. And some of the new agencies won't have that to fall back on. If you fail to cure cancer, there's not much consolation in that. And it's worth remembering that DARPA itself has not always been a success. But I think this generation of politicians have learned that difficulty isn't a reason to avoid doing something. And a difficult process, you'll learn a lot of things. Innovations will emerge, and that difficulty itself is actually a reason to do it in the first place. Hamish, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
In Zambia today, the private funeral will take place of Kenneth Kaunda, one of the last of a generation of African leaders who fought colonial rule. Kenneth Kaunda was the founding father of Zambia. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. And the totem of his power was not the same as those of other African leaders. They had fly whisks or batons, but he had a very large white handkerchief, which he would carry in his pocket when he went to give speeches. Above all, we must respect the laws which we ourselves make. He would deploy it not just to wipe off the sweat of exhorting his people, but also because he would very often cry at what he was telling them. And what he was telling them were the sad stories of how Zambia had been under British colonial rule. He'd been born near the Congolese border, the son of a minister in a poor family. He'd remembered how his father in the church had had to sit on a rough wooden bench while the white ministers had sat on cushions. And he remembered too down at the white butcher's shop how black women customers would be manhandled if they tried to protest against the rotten meat that they were palmed off with. And so with stories like these, he fairly soon became committed to the cause of liberation for Zambia, which was then called Northern Rhodesia and was a British colony. He began to organize political groupings around the country, often of farm workers. He was thrown in jail twice by the British authorities. But all the time, he was convinced that he should not take up arms in this struggle. He was very influenced by the writings of Gandhi and also by Martin Luther King to think that the way ahead was nonviolence and civil disobedience at most. And he became, little by little, the most powerful man in Zambia. And in 1964, he became its president. It was a land of many ethnicities, many different languages. He had had a dream when he was still struggling as the leader of the new party, that he could make a country which would welcome every creed and every race and in fact become a wonderful place where everyone danced together. But he realized when he came to rule it that it would take a rod of iron to hold the place together. And so he became an autocratic ruler. If any political opponents raised their heads against him, he would fling them in jail or he would see them beaten. He simply would not agree to any opposition because he believed that any sign of resistance to him would allow the white minority regimes to the south of Zambia, South Africa and Zimbabwe, to infiltrate the political system and gradually break the country apart. The people of Zambia were very happy with this arrangement. It didn't worry them in the least that he was an autocrat because he was giving them what they had needed for a long time, which was better roads, clinics and schools. The whole country was subject, in a way, to his new philosophy, which he had brought in with him, which he called Zambian humanism, under which no one was to be better than another, no one was to be richer than another, no one was to exploit anyone else, and all Zambians were to have an equal chance. 
His autocratic rule met its limitations when he tried to turn his attention to the economy. Zambia was a very rich country, or potentially so. It had huge reserves of copper, 90% of which was exported. But he was unhappy that too much of the copper industry was in the hands of private companies. In 1969, he nationalized the industry. And all this tinkering in the economy made farmers very reluctant to plant. It made investors reluctant to invest. And then in 1974, the copper price fell extremely sharply and swiftly, and the country was suddenly impoverished. He decided he would have to go to the IMF. So in 1989, he went there and was told to impose an austerity program. This caused food riots. And therefore, in the end, he had to allow some opposition to surface because otherwise the country would probably have descended into civil war at that point. When he did allow it in 1990, he was voted out of office the very next year. His legacy was fairly mixed. He was greatly admired around the continent and around the world. He had been a great force for conciliation in Africa. His idea of non-violence and resistance to any idea of armed struggle had gone on all through his presidency. He had always tried to be conciliatory, even with the white minority regimes in South Africa and Rhodesia, as it then was. The more disappointing part, and it was severely disappointing, was that he left Zambia probably worse off than he found it in 1964. When he left office, the country was $7 billion in debt, and 70% of Zambians were living beneath the poverty line. So he really hadn't brought about that wonderful, dancing, happy country that he had hoped to see. When he still deployed that white handkerchief, it wasn't just as a sign of the power he'd held, but also probably something that would wipe away the tears of regret for not having done for his country everything he had hoped to. Anne Rowe on Kenneth Kaunda, who's died aged 97. all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.